Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer at Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry podcast. On this show, I'm in conversation with some of the most talented individuals working in healthcare, learning how we at Real Chemistry can better meet the needs of patients, clinicians, researchers, engineers, and scientists. And trust me, I realize that many needs need to be met, which is why this industry can get complicated. Before I introduce today's guests, I did want to walk you through how we're structuring this particular episode and hint it's a little bit of a foreshadowing for things to come. For now, this episode will live on the current Real Chemistry podcast page and all the places that you get Real Chemistry podcasts. However, in Q1 of 2024, we are working with Jim Weiss, our founder and chairman, to launch his own show called The Chairman Podcast, where you'll hear more conversations like this one. They will be topic-driven episodes, and Jim is going to get specific and personal with those working at the apex of their industry. So now let's launch into today's episode, shall we? This conversation today is with someone very special. We have lots of special guests on here, uh, but her name is Dr. Karen Knudsen. She is the CEO of the American Cancer Society, and guest hosting will be, as I mentioned before, Jim Weiss, founder and chairman of Real Chemistry. Dr. Karen Knudsen, or Dr. K as they call her, is the CEO of the American Cancer Society and the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network, and she's an internationally recognized oncology leader guided by the goal of improving the lives of cancer patients and their families. Prior to joining ACS, she was the EVP of Oncology Services for Jefferson Health and Director of Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center, one of the elite National Cancer Institute's NCI-designated cancer centers in the U.S. Dr. Kay is well known for her discoveries in prostate cancer, advancing our understanding of the molecular and cellular mechanisms underlying the common diagnosis and paving the way for targeted therapies. For this one, I won't steal too much of their thunder, but know that you're about to get a comprehensive look into the state of the state of cancer treatment with two very big brains and change agents in the oncology space. Hey, I'm excited to talk to you, um, you know, about all things American Cancer Society, Bright Edge, and all the terrific things you're doing. It really feels like... Um, you know, you've changed the game there from my experience. I'm not saying what was before, but we, you and I, when we met, we talked about your grandfather's American Cancer Society, which I used to go around, you know, my mom would send me out in the community and <clears throat> we would collect on her behalf. Um, it's obviously changed a whole ton. Um, what do you think is the most significant impact you've made since you got there? So we're one organization we're acting like it and we have singularity of vision. So, you know, my mother was like yours. My, I, my mom has gave me her, you know, 1956, <laughs> uh, you know, where she was working with one of the divisions and of the American cancer society to do good in the world. You know, I grew up in a military family and being doing service and doing good in the world for a purpose and being purpose driven is just part of my DNA. Uh, and so, you know, when I was an oncology researcher, when I was a cancer center director and leading oncology and healthcare for a 16 hospital system across two states, 
The American Cancer Society was a phenomenal partner for me. I was very thankful for my entire career. But what I didn't realize is what I was touching and feeling here in Philadelphia, where I'm sitting now, is very different than what was going on in California. Because up until very recently, there were actually truly separate organizations, all doing good in the world under the banner of the American Cancer Society, but truly separate organizations. So when I came to join the American Cancer Society as CEO in, in the middle of COVID, 2021, left my healthcare position to do it because I love this organization. Um, I did it for that opportunity to take all these wonderful things that happen across the nation with the American Cancer Society and bring it into functioning as one strong ACS against cancer with singularity of vision and singularity of mission. You know, we are aligned very strongly under our goal of what we do every day. And that's to improve the lives of cancer patients and their families through advocacy, through through discovery, you know, funding cancer research, and through patient support, which is my biggest team across the country. And we also think very deeply about what does success look like? And that's ending cancer as we know it for everyone. That's the special sauce of ACS. We truly represent every cancer in every life. So let's go back a little bit, bring us back. What drew you into medicine in the first place? I mean, you know, was it this purpose-driven situation, you know, was it your parents? Anyway, I always like to know why yeah. go that direction. You know, the hardest thing for me to articulate is why I love science. I, I, don't, I honestly don't remember a time when I didn't love science. And keep in mind, I, 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 I'd never met a scientist, Jim. My father's special forces, you know, my mother's a typical special forces wife who needed to move every one to three years and reinvent her career every time, ultimately becoming one of the first executives at Williams-Sonoma as that <laughs> gourmet cookware company came wow. up. So I really have had no background in science, but I just loved it. And and so when I um, you know, went through undergraduate at George Washington University, I initially thought, well, if you like science, you you must have to go be a physician. And one of my professors took me under the wing and said, Karen, you love science and you are so curious and dedicated to solving problems. You should give yourself a moment to see what it's like to be a scientist. And he asked me to apply for an internship at the National Cancer Institute while I was an undergraduate. And I did that. And I loved it. And I never looked back. So when I went to graduate school was in the early 90s in California, was the time when the genetics of cancer were starting to become explored. And I was part of that. At, you know, at, its, at its base, cancer is a disease of uncontrolled cell growth, cells that shouldn't divide, keep dividing. And that's what cancer is. And so I was lucky enough to be part of that movement in that time to understand what goes wrong genetically and to imprint and clone genes that and identify genes that are, are part of the underpinning. So while I loved that, I really felt the entire time that my mission was to take the science and to connect it to people. And so when I went to go do my fellowship, I got a lot closer to what we call translational science. So how is it that what I'm doing in the laboratory is solving for a problem that's happening in the clinic? And how do I bridge that and then bring it into new clinical intervention? And that really defined the entirety of my oncology career. And I had I had a funded, very active lab focused on advanced prostate cancer all the way up until the time I stepped into ACS and needed to uh, turn my grants over to someone else. All right. So prostate cancer, I mean, that why that 
in particular? How did you land there? So again, I want to take you back to mid-90s. So what happened in the mid-90s? It was after the time that women had quite correctly um, put themselves together and said, breast cancer is a problem, right? This is the number one diagnosed malignancy of women, the second leading cause of cancer death for women, and there is not enough research on breast cancer. So they ha- they advocated, and that resulted in increasing in funding at the government level, including but not limited to Department of Defense funding, which still exists today, that's specific to funding for breast cancer. And as a result, all of these wonderful things happen downstream. We understood for the first time that breast cancer is not one disease, it's at least five, that all comes from a different reason and has to be treated in a different way. So we saw what could happen when there was intensification of research in an area. So when I chose my fellowship, I went to go work at UCSD, Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research, which is just a phenomenal researcher, still a mentor to me, Dr. Webb Cavaney. Uh, He's a National Academy member and just a rock star. He was the first person to ever show that tumor suppressors, these genes that constrain uh, cells from becoming cancerous, actually exist. So I went to go work for him thinking I was going to go work in his brain tumor group. And there was this pivotal moment when I walked into his office. This day day I showed up and, you know, shorts and a T-shirt and pigtails to to start my fellowship because that's how you dress in a lab in California. And he said, Karen, we're going to start a group on prostate cancer. And I said, why? And he said, well, let's look at what's just happened with breast cancer. And let's look at the parallel in men. It's the number one diagnosed malignancy of men in this country, second leading cause of cancer death. Not one person really understands metastatic disease and why it happens. And you're going to be the person to try to help figure that out. And I actually was able to, without getting into the weeds, take what I had done previously, this understanding why cells grow, and try to define, and I did define, how it is that testosterone, which drives prostate cancer growth, induces uncontrolled cell division specific to the prostate. And that's that's the target of therapy. So I started to meet this goal and was lucky enough in my career to take those learnings, advances in the science, and, change, and and observations from the clinic and turn it into clinical trials that change practice. I mean, you know, and where it's come since then is incredible. I mean, having worked on Dendrion's, you know, Provenge initially, which was really one of the first of the newer breakthroughs, and now so many since then, you must feel great about what you got started there. And where where do we go from here? Yeah, I do feel great about it. And, you know, I feel great about the trainees that worked with me that I now see, you know, as leaders in the in the oncology community going on and, and taking up the mantle to do great work in prostate and in other disease types. And I have really, really been enthusiastic about this new the advent of new interventions in cancer that are truly doing what I want to do every day, improve lives. Immunotherapy coming in to be the, you know, the this additional arrow in the quiver, right? Knowing that we had surgical intervention, radiation, and, chem- and standard chemotherapy starting to become precision oncology. And now all of a sudden comes immuno-oncology. And we're actually seeing cures in some disease types. Really amazing. But then what about on the other side? On the other side, we actually have a cancer vaccine that is going to, we have the potential to actually cure HPV-induced cancers. 
And, and the data that we collect every year at the American Cancer Society, when we look at trends of cancer incidence, cancer mortality every year, report them out to the nation. It's a huge study that we run every year. This last year, let's look at the data. It's the case that we had a 65% drop in cervical cancer incidence specific to women age 20 to 24. Why? Because they're the first generation to have been vaccinated as children against HPV. So, you know, this is telling us something that we actually have an opportunity on the one hand to prevent cancers from ever happening. That coupled with tobacco cessation and the other things that we know are cancer preventative. And on the other side, we have treatment strategies for cancers that had previously been intractable. So when I look at the 200 diseases that are cancer, it's easy to get demoralized because let's be real, there are 200 of them, right? But on the other hand, there's this silver lining that's happening, these wins that we're getting in some cancer types that are emboldening us to invest more in cancer research and get more done so that we can address those that are either stagnant or going the wrong way. So you're out of academics. Let's bring us back to, to your <laughs> job now, right? At American Cancer Society, what are the issues you're facing? What mountains are you climbing? You know, what do you hope to change? And what, how are you going to leave your mark here? Oh, yeah. What, what's success here look like? So we, we're de we've definitely been part of this success so far. So the way that we see our value proposition at the American Cancer Society is this unique combination of research, advocacy, and patient support. So what does that mean in practice? Well, let me say that while those are our three arms, everything is built on the foundation of ending cancer as we know it for everyone. What does that mean? It means that all of the programs that we run are intended to solve for cancer care inequity whether that's geographic, demographic, cancer-specific, age-specific, all of our programs are meant to solve for these high priorities where there's a, a disparity in outcome. So let's take that as a given. But then the three arms that we have are intended to solve for the cancer problem together. Discovery has to continue to happen. We're the largest funder of cancer research outside the U.S. government. Right now, as we're talking to each other, we have more, more than $435 million committed in grants as at any given day. Um, and it's really important because when the funding lines are so short at the government, and that's where they are right now, they're very small, the high-risk, high-gain science doesn't find traction anywhere. The translational science often doesn't find traction anywhere. And the implementation science of I've got a great idea for prevention doesn't, but I can't test it, often doesn't get funded anywhere. That's our secret sauce. So maintaining this ability to fund at a high level is key. And Jim, I just want to put it, I want to put a, do, an, a, a dollar figure to it outside the current steady state. The high watermark for cancer in this country was 1991. It's when it, the cancer mortality rate was at the highest. Since then, we've seen a 33% overall decline in cancer mortality, 33% overall for all cancers together. And we can directly tie that to investment in cancer research. And since that time, the American Cancer Society has put $3.3 billion into cancer research funding. So we are not a small player. So that, that, that reduction in cancer mortality emboldens us to do more. We know that we must continue to fund in cancer research is a key component. But the other two parts of ACS are intended to get those breakthroughs to people. First is advocacy. This is what I, one of the things I love 
is that I'm not just the CEO of the American Cancer Society. I'm the CEO of the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. That's a lot of words. So we call it ACS CAN. It's our 501c4. What does that mean? It means that we can and do lobby at the state and the federal level for policy and, and, and legislation and regulation that gets things to people. Things like making sure colonoscopy is covered after somebody tests positive at home with a colorectal cancer risk test. Making sure that patient navigation becomes a reimbursable component of somebody's cancer care. Going to be true as of January of next year due to our advocacy making sure that biomarker testing is covered so that people can be matched to the right cancer pair of therapy the first time. True in 14 states right now. Thank you, Governor Newsom, for finally signing that bill. We're looking, as I'm sitting here tonight, for Governor Hochul in New York to sign that bill so we can say there are 15. So advocacy is this incredible power where the science moves into policy And in one day, an elected official can enhance access to cancer prevention and cancer care to millions of people. It's amazing. But my biggest workforce and the biggest way that we solve for directly solve for these challenges in accessing cancer breakthroughs is what we call patient support. We work in 5,000 communities, boots on the ground, ACS employees, a large distributed workforce to help cancer patients where they need it most. This is the not sexy part of solving for the problems of cancer. Things like transportation affect a wide swath of cancer patients. If someone can only come to the chemotherapy unit three days a week instead of five, they are not going to have the same outcome of someone who's got a ride to get them there every day, period. This is why we have road to recovery, transportation grants. We have volunteers who give rides all across the country to get people to care. That's why we have 32 Hope Lodges that we own and operate, never charging a cancer patient or their family a dollar or even a dime or a penny. Um, These are special, special places that allow cancer patients and families to connect with each other, to be near the cancer center, and some patients stay 200 days. So this is something we want to and must build more. Many areas of the country require people to travel very long distances and stay there before so that they can actually get care but also education, patient navigation, which we pay for right now across the country through through granting mechanisms so we can understand what, what truly exceptional patient navigation looks like. Patient support does a ridiculous amount within communities to try to ensure that nobody falls through the cracks. And I'm just so proud that the learnings there and the learnings on research ultimately get put together in what are durable solutions through advocacy. And that's the special sauce. So what's what does success look like? We measure ourselves at ACS by the number of lives that we touch every year. And it's every single person in my organization owns that. Even the CFO owns how many patients we were able to touch. And just patient support touches 55 million unique lives every year. It's amazing. It's too bad there's that many that have to be touched, I guess, is that caregivers too, right? I mean, that's not just, you know, so we both relate on this level of the importance of caregiving. I mean, what's the role ACS plays there? Oh, no kidding. So we talk about this all the time. There are three things that ground us. We're trying to decide between option A or option B of a program we would run, both impactful, right? We remind ourselves, what's our mission? To improve the lives of cancer patients and their families, What's the vision 
to end cancer as we know it for everyone. And who are our key stakeholders? Patients and their caregivers. We love scientists. I'm a scientist. They're not our stakeholder. We love health systems. I was a healthcare executive. We work a lot with health systems. We have to, but they're not our stakeholder. It's the patient and the caregiver. And as I know, and you know, Jim, the caregiver is the one who's driving a lot of the decision-making, who needs to absorb so much of the learning, who has to you know, disaffiliate themselves from their emotion and sort through this just incredible amount of bewildering fact and responsibility that's put in front of them. Got labs tomorrow, imaging here. Then you're going to go to radiation. You're going to go get a consult at metal oncology, and then you're going to have to go back to labs. It's Byzantine, even if you are very well versed in the healthcare system. So this is why we're so passionate about patient navigators, but also passionate about ensuring that caregivers get the support they have. So we we work on all fronts, grants with research studies active right now to understand what works and doesn't work, to try to assist a caregiver and help them get the best uh, information and access that they need to have their their loved one, the person they're caring for, have the optimal chance at a positive outcome. We also provide resources for them, downloadable toolkits, digital resources, the 24-7 call center gets used by caregivers. So at any given time, right now, we have about $13 million in grants um, dedicated toward enhancing um, the ability of caregivers to function. And these are people who often have responsibilities at home, trying to take care of the family on their own, keeping their job so important when the loved one, the person, your partner in life is not, not that a caregiver is always a partner, but frequently it is, is, you know, going through this struggle. So the mental health of the caregiver is also as important as the information that we give them. Yes. I, couldn't agree more. So I want to make sure we talk about this. When you think about what the biggest challenges are for ACS in the coming years, what do you need us, the community, to do to help you? You know, my audience, what what do you need them to do? Like go volunteer, give money. I'm sure it's all of it, but I'd love to hear what you see as the big challenges we can help with. It's all of it. You know, every 15 seconds, someone's diagnosed with cancer. That equates to 1.9 million individuals this year that are going to hear, I have cancer. And now then let's double it of the number of people affected because now you've got 1.9 million caregivers who are going to get involved. So we've got a large population who needs help. When I stay up at night, the thing that keeps me up is that I am unable to scale some of the programs that I know are making a difference in geography A into geography B due to lack of resources. And those resources come from across the different strategies by which we help patients. Sometimes that resources, we actually need more money to conduct a prevention and screening program or a vaccination program or an education program. Or we'd like to fund this incredible grant that fell just below the line. Or we really want to you know, make sure that we're putting together the materials to ensure the biomarker testing coverage happens in all 50 states, not just 14. Or it can be, we need to build more Hope Lodges. And that is without question, something that is on our docket. So there are so many ways to get involved um, that I can't help but to think that we will have an option for anyone who wants to get involved in assisting with cancer. If you have a passion, anyone listening has a passion 
for giving back or for doing something to ensure that the burden of cancer is reduced for at least one person, I can make that happen. I promise you that the day that you spend volunteering in the Hope Lodge making dinner for people who have had a pretty rough day in the infusion unit is going to be one of the best days you will have in your lifetime. And the same with giving someone a ride back and forth to care or volunteering at an event to talk about your story as a cancer survivor or as a cancer caregiver, because so much of, you know, keeping keeping positive energy and positive motion going during a cancer journey requires you connecting with others who've walked in your path. And that is something that we really enjoy doing is providing matching for someone who's walked in that journey. I mean, you mentioned prevention. Tell us a little bit about the importance of early detection and prevention versus, you know, getting to it maybe. I mean, you talked about obviously HPV vaccine, great point. Um, Then you talked about your example where you work to help lower the age for um, screening and colorectal cancer, which we know is highly curable if you catch it early. So what research or statistics back the decision to really lower that age and also begin to move us in this preventive direction versus waiting till people have it? Yeah, without question, you know, while there will inevitably be every year people diagnosed with advanced cancers, especially the cancers that are not screenable, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, at least not screenable right now. Uh, We're working on that. But that's going to happen. And we need to make sure that we are addressing cures and and life extending life saving treatments for that population. No question. But we must also move up earlier into the disease course of prevention and screening. Because irrespective of what cancer we're talking about, your chances of survival and the quality of life are both enhanced when cancers are caught early, period, end of story. I'm not aware that there's an exception to that. So making sure that, let's just start with prevention, that people understand that they can prevent cancer and that they can take action on their own behalf. In total, if we look at all cancer types, we can ascribe about 42% of cancers to be associated with modifiable risk factors. So what can you do? Obviously, don't smoke. There are a number of smoking-related cancers, and that is the, the data on that are exceptionally strong. Vaccination against HPV-induced uh, cancers. Those are significant for both men and women, which is sometimes something that's not understood particularly well. Get vaccinated if you're still in the age that's of eligibility. Third, be active. It's not enough, actually, to just have a healthy diet and have a healthy weight. Data have shown that being sedentary is also a risk factor for cancer, even if you have a healthy weight and a healthy diet. So it's important to be active, stay active, limit alcohol, and have um, you know healthier diets like Mediterranean-type diets have been shown to be associated with reduced cancer incidence. So these are all things that people can do in their everyday life. You can do it as a business person, encouraging people, for example, on one-on-one meetings that instead of sitting in front of Zoom, make it a phone call and make it okay to walk or be on the treadmill or make sure that your business is structured such that people can get up and move between meetings. And we try to embody that at the American Cancer Society because 
when you see when you see people exercising and walking, you see people exercising and walking. I see people engaging in cancer prevention. So, you know, really important things to do. But early detection is also key. It's the case in the country that we know screening rates are not what they should be. Now, it's variant dependent on what cancer screening we're talking about. But it is so essential for people to understand what is their individual cancer risk and to work with their primary care physician to develop the right screening plan. Without question, early detection saves lives. Would you say some of these new molecular tests that we hear about, like 23andMe and, you know, we see it advertised all the time. Should we go out and do that? Or is that, you know, you hear some doctors say, oh my God, no, you don't do that. We don't, we can't deal with all that. But I mean, the question are, I mean, for those that are curious, no, isn't knowledge power? I mean, I don't, I would, would those shed light or the, or we're too soon? So we're in a new era where cancer, you know, understanding cancer risk is much more than just about your age, right? So when you think about cancer guidelines, so colorectal cancer screening, you talked about it, so let's bring that one up. Everyone age 45 should have a colonoscopy, and that's for someone of average risk. But what's not always clear to the U.S. population is who's average risk? Well, this is someone without a known genetic link to colorectal cancer. It's someone without a known medical history that may predispose them to colorectal cancer. It's someone who, you know, has has not previously had something that looked like a precancerous polyp. So we make it very hard at some level for people to understand what their actual risk is. But I think that that that's changing and we are helping to change that. So your cancer risk is a multi and, and designing a screening plan that's correct for Jim, that's for correct for Karen, is going to be um, a combination of what's my age, what's my medical history, what have my exposures been, and what are my genetics. I've had my genetic testing done. I know what my risk of cancer looks like based on that and have a screening plan. That's- and that is like, just to be clear to our audience, that's like BRCA and things like that. That's I mean, right. that's a- And it is the case that, you know, your the genetics you're born with don't change. The seed of knowledge does. So we are rapidly entering an era when I believe people will know their genetic risk based on genetic testing, and it will be entered into your electronic medical record. And as it is the case, that additional knowledge is gained about some of these genes for which we're currently uncertain, is it a risk of gene or not, um, that that state of knowledge will then allow you over time to have an even greater understanding about genetic risk. And that should factor into your screening plan. I am not a BRCA2 carrier, but if I were, I would have a very different breast cancer screening plan than I have right now. I would be watched very closely for ovarian cancer. And I would also be thinking deeply about, I I only have sons, not daughters, but I would also be thinking deeply about the ramifications for my sons because BRCA2 is very strongly associated with aggressive prostate cancer. Right. And people, I don't think, know that. They don't. And so this is why we're here to try to help yes. that understanding. Now, there's another innovation that's coming that we have been a, a strong part of, and that's multi-cancer early detection tests. The concept of taking a blood draw from someone and finding ca- what looks like cancer DNA or cancer cells in someone's bloodstream. It's a fact that we've known for a long time 
that your immune system is really good at finding cells that look no longer like you because some of your cells have become cancerous and fighting them off. We know this to be true. And the rubbish bin becomes your bloodstream. And so finding that in your bloodstream could mean that your immune system is fighting off something that looks like cancer. It could mean that you have something in your it, currently right now that is cancer that just we can't see yet, but it's there. And so we need to watch you more closely. That's where I think cancer testing is coming, going. We're funding in this area. We're actively participating in studies in this area to try to accelerate the science. And back to my advocacy, we're already advocating at the federal level to ensure that when these types of tests, whichever one becomes the first one that's a breakthrough, get FDA approval and have been shown to show clinical benefit, that there's a way for people to get access to it through reimbursement and making sure that there's a pathway toward reimbursement before it comes about. So that's the bold new era I think we're in. We are really going to see a dynamic shift in imaging so we can find smaller cancers through the use of AI to help us find smaller cancers, to liquid biopsy tests like multi-cancer early detection tests to try to find cancers through blood, but also through prevention. That's where we've got to go. If we are going to end cancer as we know it for everyone, we are not going to do it by treating people with metastatic disease. We just don't want it to come to that. Nope. And that's a common message, a great way to sort of end uh, our discussion, you know, because I know you've got to get on and I don't think people want to hear us go on and on, though we could for hours on this topic. Um, but let's get to the work of the work. Um, I think it's interesting on the screening point in heart disease, we have cholesterol, we have all these things, we might, we should have it in cancer. It seems logical. And we can, and the, the tech's moving in that direction. A positive application for AI. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, and then I guess I like to do stuff that's a little more fun and a little more off the cuff. Um, I, I ask a few questions of all my guests and, you know, I think yours will be fun. Um, first of all, what's your guilty pleasure? Oh, what's my guilty pleasure? Gelato. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> great. Good answer. If you were stranded on a desert island, which singer, band, or album would you listen to in constant repeat? Oh, that's an easy one. This is actually what got me to California. Grateful Dead. Another bonding moment right here. New Year's Eve shows, 1987. First time I ever went to California. And I never oh, went my there. God. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, I was just at the Metropolitan in your town seeing uh, J-Rad. You know, I, I don't know if you were there, but. No. If you weren't working in this field, what would you be doing? Boy, that would be tough. I came from healthcare. I loved healthcare, but, I, you know, this is this is still very similar to what would I be doing? Maybe I'd be a senator or a governor. That could also happen. And looks like there's, at least in Congress, there's one less seat. You know, there's, <laughs> that, you, that is true. To Long Island. Anyway, so thanks so much, Dr. Knudsen, for being here and for doing all you're doing. Um, I'm so energized to work with you and your team. And, you know, today was just another reason why we're, we're in it to win it. Um, for our loved ones and for all. So uh, look forward to seeing you again on the road and uh, let's keep up the great work. Yeah, well, we can only do it through partnership and I really appreciate it, Jim. This was this was a lot of fun and uh, happy to come back anytime, answer any questions and 
you know, I'm here for, for everyone. So, uh, you know, really look forward to just making sure everyone has whatever they need to know about cancer prevention, cancer screening. If someone has a cancer diagnosis, we're the Switzerland of the cancer world. We have no vested interest in where anybody gets care, only that they're informed. Cancer.org. It's all there. For all my audience and, and friends and colleagues, you heard it here. Let's partner with ACS. Take a trip to Switzerland. That's right. Take a trip to Switzerland. You got it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. That's all for this episode. And thanks to everyone for listening. As a quick PSA, we will be taking a brief hiatus over the holidays, but we'll be back again in mid-January. Also, if you liked what you heard, don't forget to rate and review our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to follow the podcast for free so you don't miss an episode. And as I always like to mention, consider sending us your comments, thoughts, ideas, or questions to me at Real Chemistry. I'm a strout at realchemistry.com, where you can find me on the social channels. We love to hear from our listeners and clients as your feedback helps us develop a show that's catered to you. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.